Harvey, thanks so much for joining us um, at the Mellon Sawyer seminar series, a post-war commemoration, uh, reconciliation and rebuilding um, series. Um, in our discussions today, um, there was some uh, discussion on who has the right uh, to commemorate certain events, not just who is commemoration for, um, but who um, is entitled to um, commemorate. Um, and I wondered if you'd like to respond to the discussion. Well, I thought that was a very interesting discussion that we heard on that topic today. And it struck me that um, actually, it's, it, it, although we could attempt to give our views individually about what it should or shouldn't be the case in terms of who has the right to um, design a commemoration and, and who uh, you know, has the right to perform it, etc., I think there's also a kind of really interesting question about um, what people's, how people's intuitions tend to converge under different circumstances. I think um, we all have a tendency to essentialize the groups that we belong to and the groups that we see as uh, rivals or even enemies and our groups mm -hmm. of various kinds. And how we get come to essentialize groups is quite heavily shaped by our historically um, constituted and, and, and socially learned environments. So mm -hmm. um, we uh, under we were talking earlier on, if you recall, about how harsh environments seem to be a, a niche for uh, certain kinds of um, essentialized reasoning. For example, mm -hmm. the kinds of environments in which uh, you might expect to see um, an emphasis on. Uh, membership of uh, a group based on shared ancestry or shared uh, territory or shared mm -hmm. ethnicity and you might also have a more hawkish view on outgroups. Mm -hmm. Under those circumstances I think our sense of what is appropriate in terms of who should have the right to commemorate events and what sorts of topics or themes or um, foci should be the um, at the heart of the commemorative act is going to be different from what it would be like in a, a more existentially secure environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, uh, as, although there, we can debate back and forth endlessly what our own personal intuitions are about the right thing, I think we have to recognise that humans at a population level vote with their feet in various directions depending on how secure their environments are. Mm -hmm. um. And that seems to suggest that the um, moral discussions over um, who um, has the right to commemorate and who doesn't um, are redundant um, and the debate is shaped by broader economic and political forces and flows which people might not have any... Um, uh, any uh, impact on um, themselves or any even any awareness of so do you think there is any ethical dimension to commemoration you know some kinds of forms of commemoration are conducive to uh, more peaceful outcomes than others mm -hmm. those that emphasize the presence of outgroup threats are likely to stimulate more warmongering and more jingoistic and more, um, you know, sort of more outgroup hatred in all its manifestations. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we have to achieve some kind of consensus about the sort of world we want to live in. There are those who um, subscribe to liberal values who could benefit from memorials that um, support the kinds of values and ideas that they hold dear. And there are those who support more right-wing or more um, aggressive um, 
kinds of values and memorials can also and commemorations can support their values as well essentially mm -hmm. commemorative acts are a way of generating social glue which can be used put into the service of both peaceful and aggressive um, projects mm -hmm. would you argue then that um, um, commemoration as a as a way of achieving unity and, and social cohesion is more powerful, more effective, if it um, single, singles out the other, if it defines the other? I don't, I wouldn't necessarily think it is. I mean, I think that's a great question, by the way. I, and how would you, um, you need some kind of measure of effectiveness, right, to be able to compare the two. But it seems to me, at least on theoretical grounds, that the core, that when you know, to the, the extent to which commemorations are able to bond groups together will depend on the extent to which they can create a sense of shared essence. That's one of the key things that they're able to do. And they can do that by evoking um, notions of shared history and shared biology, but also uh, of personal experience that's shared. And not just any old personal experience, but the kind that actually is defining for you both as a person and as a group. Um, Commemorations don't need to, in, you know, uh, evoke some outgroup threat in order to accomplish that. And as I was saying during the discussions earlier, um, if we were to focus our acts of commemoration primarily on uh, events that we've lived through and survived and ordeals that we've surmounted collectively that didn't involve blameworthy agents or outgroups, uh, maybe that would be lead to a sort of more harmonious and sort of peaceful kind of group bonding, not the kind that motivates ongoing intergroup violence, but the kind that um, allows us as a group to solve collective action problems through cooperation and um, peaceful and harmonious social relations. So maybe we should shift the emphasis away from memorialising wars and onto the memorialization of other kinds of uh, intense shared experiences. Mm -hmm. For instance, our ability to overcome natural disasters of various kinds. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was thinking you mentioned <coughs> commemoration um, to celebrate um, our ability to overcome natural disasters. But I was also thinking of... Um, the EU and some of the projects that it was, um, whether academic liaison or whether um, sort of, uh, cross-transnational projects um, and sort of cultural restoration projects that one sees throughout the UK and, and Europe um, uh, as a broader and inclusive commemorative act. Um, but bearing in mind your own um, research experience in Libya um, and also... Um, our sort of shared experience of, uh, uh, of, of Brexit in the last sort of uh, uh, year or so. Um, uh, are you uh, uh, an optimist or a pessimist <coughs> that these shared systems of commemorative response um, could actually be put into action? I mean, one of the things that does obviously inspire pessimism is that so often one sees a pattern where um, opportunities to bind together much, much larger groups seem to fail and break down into um, some sort of intergroup conflict or sectarian violence or something of that order. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it seems to be very difficult to sustain very large groups for any great length of time. Now that might be because it's inherently, it somehow goes against the grain of human nature <laughs> and that we, we will not be able to overcome this. Personally, I'm more optimistic. I actually mm -hmm. think it is possible. I've seen lots of examples that seem to be at least to contain the rudiments of much larger and more inclusive forms of group alignment. Mm -hmm. um, in an ideal world, I think we would all place as our primary sort of large group alignment, humanity at large, not our country, not even Europe but, um, or, a, or a region of the world, but the whole world. Mm -hmm. After all, we're all in it together as human beings, and there are lots of collective action problems that are actually best solved at that level as a, as a, as a species, not as a um, particular nation or a particular cluster of groups. Um, so I think, um, but to accomplish that, obviously we need a new way of uh, recognising the elements of common, our common humanity. But I don't think it's impossible. We have studies showing that actually we're capable of extending the net even more widely than that when it comes to group bonding. We recently mm -hmm. did a study uh, that involved interviewing large numbers of donors mm -hmm. to lion conservation following the tragic death of Cecil the Lion <laughs> that many of you will remember, uh, the um, dentist with his long Tra Tragic assassination of Cecil well, the yes, Lion, I was going I mean, to say. A lot of people were deeply <laughs> offended by that and part of the reason they felt so offended was that they saw a bit of themselves in Cecil the Lion um, and his sufferings connected in some important and meaningful way to their sense of uh, being um, of, of suffering as well and they, they felt a connection there across the species barrier. Mm -hmm. So if we can bond with other species, as clearly happened in this case, those people donating money by the way, um, showed that over time, this is one of our first sort of clear demonstrations of this in a longitudinal study, um, their fusion levels actually grew to the extent that they'd actually reflected on uh, the demise of Cecil and the suffering that he went through and, and found that to be personally relevant. And uh, these sorts of um, processes can apply to much larger groups and certainly our local relational groups. Um, and there seems to be no limit on how big those groups could be. Maybe we mm -hmm. could fuse with all mammals for that matter. Um, uh, or certainly uh, it's possible, as we've seen, for people to feel motivated to do quite pro-social actions to support um, those who are distantly related genetically or even members of other species. So I think there is hope in all of that. <laughs> I think that hope is always a good note to end on. Um, <laughs> so thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.